welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Steve Gumer, the founder and president of Partners Relief and Development, a non-governmental organization that works with children affected by war and oppression providing emergency relief and sustainable solutions to communities impacted by conflict. For the past 20 years, Steve, his family and team have worked in three primary areas. Sustainable community development, strengthening families and communities to prevent the exploitation of trafficking of children, and relief during times of acute crisis. While the work began along the Thai Myanmar border, it has expanded to include many projects throughout Southeast Asia emergency relief for the Rohingya in Bangladesh, as well as aid to refugees and internally displaced people from Syria and Yemen. Here, Steve talks about his team and the work they do in delivering aid to some of Myanmar's most vulnerable peoples, the power of self-reflection and of love, and some of the pitfalls that come with participating in charitable work within the modern context. Let's start the conversation. So, Steve, um, it's really great to meet you. And we really want to thank you for talking to us on the podcast today. So if you want to maybe introduce yourself and you can tell everyone who you are and what organization you represent. Sure. I'm grateful and thankful to join you, Suzanne and Ruth, and to be a part of the ANA podcast. I lived in Thailand, in Chiang Mai, Thailand for 22 years, and it's there that my wife and I started this organization called Partners Relief and Development. And we started by responding to one little girl, actually, who was being cared for by a widow in Shoklo refugee camp. That little girl was found by the pro-democracy Armed Resistance Karen National Union, or KNLA, the Karen National Liberation Army. Soldiers were dispatched to a village that was attacked by the Burma army in 1994. And the only known survivor was this little girl. And she was four years old. She was carried by those soldiers to this wonderful woman's home and asked if she could be the foster mother. They asked her to be the foster mother of this child. And she said, yes. And my wife and I met that woman in 1994. And she asked us if we could help set up some kind of a lifeline for unaccompanied minors in the camps, because that wasn't a possibility at the time. It wasn't a service that was allowed by the Thai government in the camps. So with Rose's encouragement, we wrote a letter to our friends and family and asked for money, and we got it and committed to that first little girl. And then subsequently, when word got out that there was a place for unaccompanied children, it grew every month by you know, somewhere between three and and seven or eight children. As villages were attacked, those children were brought to the known place in the camp, parented by Rose, this widow that I mentioned. And that's how things started. From there, we got involved in sustainable solutions to the ongoing needs of those kids in the communities. We got involved in cross-border aid to help, in the beginning, just the Karen provide for themselves while they're running. Because as you know, the ethnic people don't want to leave their country. It's a minority that actually leaves and a smaller percentage of that that actually wants to leave. They leave because of the incredible violence and the pressure that they experience. And, and generally with their families, they'll cross the border. 
but those inside Myanmar at the time, it was between three and four million people who were internally displaced. That's who we grew to focus on, especially in the 90s, in the late 90s, helping those internally displaced people. So it's grown from there to where it is today. We have 65 full-time staff. Almost all of us are from the ethnic states. There's, I think, only eight or nine Westerners on our team now, serving mostly in facilitating and administrative roles, while the ethnic team members are the heroes that do the hard work of of, uh, both cross-border aid and the services that we've put together to help those people who are in crisis. So that's kind of an introduction to Partners Relief and Development and me. That's a good introduction. It's a good overview of what you do. I'm just curious when you were saying there about, you know, displaced children, unaccompanied children. I'm assuming that when they're fleeing, like a parent could get killed or could get lost. Or is that the kind of situation that they're in? That's how they end up on their own? Yeah. When their villages or communities or towns are attacked, it often happens at three in the morning without warning and in chaos. And the families do their best to stay together, to to grab what they need to survive and run off into the jungle. What happens is on occasion, children are not with their parents. They're out in the fields or they're, they're just not at home for one reason or another, and they're left behind. Sometimes while they're fleeing because of the chaos and because of the numbers of people, families get separated from one another and those children end up lost. In other cases, like you said, fathers and mothers or family members get killed and then those children are left orphaned. So there's a whole host of reasons why they end up unaccompanied. And that's happening today too, as villages are being attacked. So what we did was establish a place first in Shogo Refugee Camp, which isn't there anymore, but then in all of the camps on the Thai-Myanmar border a place where those children could be brought to so that they could be cared for until the details of why they were unaccompanied could be established and until their loved ones, if they were still surviving, could find them and be reunited. And that more often than not happened. So the unaccompanied minor story is probably the saddest story of all. And we have people on staff who have experienced that. You know, they grew up fleeing from the Myanmar army, ended up lost and unaccompanied and grew up in the refugee camp system, went through school and, you know, eventually some of them joined our staff. So it's a story that every ethnic state understands well in Myanmar. And in terms of like, obviously you've been doing this for a long time. So do you feel that like things were getting better before the coup happened? Like, was there improvements in these camps? Were people getting opportunities, education? Has there been a difference prior to the coup to now? Are we going back in time? Is this like flashbacks 20 years ago for you? in, in <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because of the changes, even though Su Chi isn't who anyone thought she was, there were significant changes. And you know, for example, we ran a huge education program in Karen State that had something like 140,000 children enrolled. And I believe it was Save the Children got legal access to those areas where we were running these, these kind of subversive education programs. 
And we gave our whole consortium that we had developed, all of our schools, we gave to save the children because, you know, they had legal access and they were able to run professional level programs that we weren't able to run. So that's just one of many visible changes that happened during the post Suchi election era prior to the coup in February. And to answer your question, yeah, it's nobody on my staff and none of the people that we work with anticipated such a departure from the progress that was being made back to, you know, the brutal 90s or 2000s. And that's exactly what we're experiencing now. I'm just wondering then, in terms of COVID, has that like obviously is another factor right now? Because there's so many people I know who can't even get back to where they were to help people who work in these organizations because they happen to be outside of the country when the coup happened due to COVID or, or something. Have you experienced that as well? Is is it causing even more complications at this time? Yeah, definitely. The biggest program work that we were running before the coup was with Rohingya people in Sitwe and in Rakhine State. And then, of course, in Bangladesh, after the attempted genocide, and that program work was was hampered because of travel restrictions and because of COVID. And that was really that was a case of flying into Myanmar and working. I'm not sure how to say this, but we don't ask for permission to do the work that we do from the authorities, because what we've experienced through our years is that asking for permission is basically asking to be denied access to those people that the regime has their sights set on to either marginalize or kill. So even with the Rohingya, we weren't working there as a registered NGO. We were going in as tourists and working with local populations who were very resourceful and just needed essentially um, money and solidarity from us to do the life-saving programs that we established with the Rohingya. COVID made it so that we couldn't visit those community leaders, especially in Rakhine State, but none of our programs broke down. We were able to figure out other creative means of getting support to them, and they have demonstrated incredible integrity and tenacity to follow through. In the other ethnic states like Karen State, Shan State, Kareni Kachin, and then up into Chin State too, that's all being done through our local contacts. And because our staff members are from those ethnic states, they aren't going in with visas and with their passports. They're going through the porous border between these countries and finding creative means to reach the people who need help the most. So while COVID complicated things and made things more restrictive, it didn't slow down our operation, especially when it comes to aid after the coup. And are you seeing effects of it in terms of people's health? Has it been spreading in any of the camps or have people been quite fortunate so far to kind of not have a huge outbreak? I have heard and read reports of cases and spreading. And I, I get those reports, especially up in Kachin State. And uh, our staff who live up in Kachin State contracted COVID, but it didn't get very serious. And they were administered through the People's Party, the Sino vaccine. So that could be part of why they fared okay. And most of the Kachin had access to that up and along the border. Reporting's pretty patchy. And even though we support a ton of medical programs, and I think we support seven different clinics and conflict areas, we're not seeing 
a lot of reporting on COVID. And that may also be due to the fact that testing is, it's not lab testing, it's, it's deduction through symptoms. So I don't really have a good answer for that question. I, I don't know much about how pervasive the virus has been in the ethnic states where we do most of our work. We've sent a ton of supplies and, you know, personal protection equipment. And when the coup happened, we turned all of our sewing and weaving operation into mask and feminine hygiene production, producing products for, for both COVID and for people on the run, especially women. So, you know, it is a, it is a concern. But numbers and the extent of infection, I'm not sure about. And tell us a little bit then, Steve, about the kind of programs, the sustainable programs that you've been running. From my understanding, you're giving them the resources and tools to be able to sustain without you guys and to run things themselves. Is that right? Am I correct in that? Well, before the coup, that was our entire focus. It was starting, initiating sustainable schools, especially in Sean State where we provided capital investment to school boards or communities. And that capital investment came with development training and was used to start a small community bank. The interest that was earned by that bank, that which was run by the school board, was to support the teacher and the upkeep of the school itself. Last time I checked, I think we had 130 schools that we had started and we have incredible These are incredible people, as you know, and I think we had like three of these loans fail, generally because of livestock diseases, so they lost their capital. But even those who lost their capital continued to pay back so that we can do more. We turn it around and and invest in other schools and school boards and places where there are no schools in, in the ethnic states, not just Sean State. So that's an example of the kinds of interventions that we're doing that that are sustainable. I think, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but something like 90% of the $3,000 per school capital investments that we've made have become self-sustaining. Those schools don't get any further support and they're operating and providing education for the children in those communities now without outside help. Livestock and farming and sewing and weaving are all things that we've also invested in. We have a couple of farms that we use for training. And again, all of those are run by the ethnic people. We bring in experts from different parts of the world to do training and various things, but the real work and the real progress for sustainability is done by the people from those ethnic states. But since the coup, we've pivoted dramatically from our focus on development back into relief. And in all of the ethnic states, now we're spending a lot more of our budget on relief than we have, you know, since the Suchi era, Suchi election. And that's because of the acute crisis of, you know, the Myanmar army's attacks on the ethnic states that has increased since the coup. And so far, your contacts within the country and the people that you were able to get relief to, has it put them in any danger at all? Have you known of any kind of jeopardy that they might have been in through continuing to to work with you? Yeah, like I said, most of the aid that we send into the ethnic states is delivered on boats, motorcycles, trucks, and on foot by 
either staff members or people that we hire in order to porter those supplies with those staff members into those ethnic states. They're generally working under the advisory or advice of the militias or the armies in those ethnic states so that they can navigate the danger of the presence of the Myanmar army, the landmines, and and all of the features of war that are present in one or another of those ethnic states. So, so far, none of our staff have been harmed or killed. We had one put in jail for a while, and we had one team member was delivering aid and the village that he was in got attacked while he was in delivery and he had to run with the villagers and hide in the jungle. This is in Karen State. But he had a satellite phone, so he called us every day. So we've had some some frightful events happen, but so far there haven't been any serious injuries or deaths of our team members. We just saw, obviously, at Christmas, those bodies that were burned and, and killed by the military and two Save the Children volunteers ended up being two of the victims of that. So obviously that's a reminder of the huge risks that people face with this military because they're capable of burning people alive. They're capable of the worst crimes. So do you worry? Was that like a wake-up call for all of you guys operating out there at the moment or, or is this something you've always been aware of? Well, that's not a departure from pre-Suchi election behavior of this regime. Especially at the end of the 90s and 2000s, this kind of thing was happening a lot in the ethnic states. It was surprising that it happened now. And maybe it shouldn't have been because unprecedented violence is happening now. I mean, since we started in 94, I don't remember there ever being jets dropping bombs on civilian villages. And they're doing that regularly now, even yesterday. So that and the attack helicopters with these battlefield munitions mounted on them against barefoot civilians running into the jungle or running away from those attacks, the brutality is incredible. And that is a surprise that it escalated from, you know, negotiated peace talks that were dirty and terrible and everything. But, you know, the violence wasn't like it is now for some years and and that it went right back to that is shocking and and horrible and that specific event i've been trying for 5 days now to get citations to get source on those people cuz radio free asia and a number of other agencies have reported on that event and they say that they were killed and then put in the vehicles and then burned not that they were burned alive but Progressive Voice came out a few days ago saying that they were put in the vehicles and burned alive. I asked them for their source, and it was three Kareni sources, three organizations in Kareni State, and with the caveat that there's an ongoing investigation. But those sources allege that they were, in fact, put into those vehicles and burned alive. And that is just, I, I mean, I, I lose my words. It's, you know, it's a return to the 90s. And um, and that Min Online is, has pushed the country back to that level of violence is, is upsetting. And uh, it has caused me to pause and say, wow, we're, we're fully back on the ground in battlefields with this kind of stuff happening. In terms of what you're doing, like, obviously, we're not media, we're not journalists, we're not 
NGO people, like we're just school teachers, you know. So this is all very new to us, all of this. And we would be very ignorant, I would say, prior to this happening to the people that we know. And like, obviously, I was living there when the coup happened. So for me, you know, I felt compelled to do something, anything. But we often discussed because our platform was growing all the time about whether, you know, we should use it to help raise money or and you know what? The sheer volume of work involved, we were just like, no way. Like, no way could we do that. Like, we can hold down our jobs and do this podcast because we can delay it, we can pause it, we can stop it at any time. But once you are helping people to survive, you can't stop and take a break and pause it for six months. It just is not possible. It is a full-time job. And obviously, we have full-time jobs. We couldn't do that. So obviously, what we do is we try to talk to people, get the stories out there. And then like if someone listens to an episode, they get a feeling for that person. And then they might want to trust in their recommendation or where they're donating to and that kind of thing. How how do you... It is a full-time job. Like, how do you do it? How do you operate it? Does it consume your life? Do you get days off? Is that a, such a thing for anyone on your team? A day off? Is that like a myth? <laughs> yeah, we have days off. But I would say that a large portion of us are always on because the nature of our work is responding to crisis. Then when crisis happens, we're responsive to that, especially since, you know, since the coup, uh, our whole team in Thailand and Massot and along the border there, I mean, I, I don't know what a day off looks like for them, but they are taking days off. We are careful to communicate that rest is an important feature of sustainability and to as best as possible model that. The staff members who are occupied with raising the money and telling the story, you know, they live in the US, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. These people are, you know, they're working a relatively structured nine to five, Monday to Friday life, and they're taking days off. Saturday and Sunday is usually a day off. But again, when there's a crisis, or when it's called upon to respond to a crucial need that we can't afford to address through our budget, then, then they're on with us and, and we're figuring out how to, how to deal with it. There's a crisis right now in Syria with one of the refugee camps we work in in Northeast Syria. And the team overnight put together a campaign to provide heaters and, and drinkable water for these new arrivals from the border of Northeast Syria. So. It's an interesting question about sustainability of our staff. Our national team members are extremely motivated, extremely smart, well-connected, and they're always on. This is their life. And I feel really grateful to be a part of that. Like I want to ask this question, but I don't want it to seem mean, uh, a <laughs> mean question. But people are often skeptical of somebody Anyone who is asking for charitable donations, especially in the West, there's a whole, ooh, like, it's a scam. It's a scam. Like, that's where our mind goes. Like, I don't see it as much when I lived in Asia. People don't think in the same way as much, but certainly here. And there's always, or people say, oh, it's getting eaten up with staff costs. You're just paying their salaries. You're not helping people. But I imagine someone has to get paid if people are going to do this as a full-time job or you have nobody doing it. So, like, I, I hope my question's coming out right, but I just wanted to address that kind of, you know, people who are maybe weary of organizations or charities or people like the people working for you know what they're doing on the ground. But what would you say to people who are maybe skeptical of organizations or thinking that, oh, a lot of these organizations are paying all their staff? I, I've seen this argument a lot with NGOs and they're like, just give it direct to people on the ground. But I mean, your people are on the ground. So I just wondered. 
Well, it's both a fair and an important question. And I don't ever find it upsetting because I've seen the waste myself. I've worked side by side with agencies that I think, you know, have a moral problem because of how they handle their money. Money is moral. I mean, <laughs> how you handle it says something about what you believe. So those are fair questions. Generally, in the nonprofit world, if you spend less than 18% on your administration of your charity and you spend 30% or less on salaries, you're viewed as a very efficient charity. And we follow like all of the guidelines of Charity Navigator and GuideStar and a number of other regulators in order to have public trust with the constituents that do support us. And we're working hard every year, for example, to keep the administrative number as low as possible. I think we finished last year at around 14%, spending 14% of our income to administrate the organization that we run. Everybody also knows at the same time that you can't run a company without paying people. And when we first started paying our staff members, there was a visible jump in quality <laughs> and sustainability and also a new connection between each of us because we were all in the same boat. We were all working towards these goals of helping kids caught in, you know, the web of violence and political complexity to have the basic things they need and respecting at every level the people's needs of those serving those people. So whether it's a Karen or a Sean or a Kachin or a Bamar or a Kiwi or an Australian or American, those people need their support. They need a job too. And our team, our organization provides that. So we spend money on that. But again, we endeavor to keep our administrative costs as low as possible. And I think that we do. I know actually by industry standards, we do a very good job at that. And for your listeners, I just advise them to do simple research. And if a charity is known to be spending, you know, under 18% on admin, that's a good charity. That's a charity that's taking care of their people with appropriate HR and appropriate, you know, financial support and insurance. But it's also an effective charity that is doing a lot with the money that they get. I guess the other thing I often wonder about as well is like, especially now in Myanmar at the moment, like it must be very hard to even show where, where the money is going. Because like, even like I give money to different groups and people I know, they can't show me where that's going. I, you know, I trust the people I just send in. But obviously like there's so much risks, you know, look, look what's happening, the level of violence. So like, is that something that you can't be as transparent or is, is that an issue or not? Do you find people care and want to see where the donation is going or they see it over time or? Yeah, we won't partner with anyone that won't give us transparent and individual reporting. So even in a relief distribution, for example, in a hill tribe village where people are not literate, our staff or the people that are doing the distribution that we work with have to give name and details and there has to be a fingerprint for each family member and each allotment of supplies that's given. Those go back to Mass Otter Chiang Mai and form the basis of both our monitoring and assessment for efficiency and also for our reporting back to our uh, supporters. So in the early days, it wasn't like that. We didn't have that kind of organization. We didn't have the wherewithal to even administrate or manage that kind of reporting. But once the systems were set up, 
by people smarter than me, we were able to and are able to have good reporting on every penny that's spent. It's something I think that you should expect. It's not hard to get accounting for how money's used, even if it's informal, like a fingerprint. And even if it's based on the trust of the group of people that you're, you know, getting behind, for them to say, this is what we did with the money and this is how we spent it is a fair expectation. Talk to me about your motto. I like your motto. To love is to act. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the last words of Victor Hugo, you know, Le Miserable's guy. And we just love it. We love the idea that it's not enough to have a sentiment. It's not enough to say that we care. Without corresponding action, those words are empty. Well, it's a step up from saying, it's a huge step up from saying, I care. I wish I could do something. But because things are so bad, I'll just keep doing nothing. To love is to act, is to say, I care enough to do something. And I will, if I am a Muslim or a Christian or of whatever faith, I will pray. And I will also, to whatever level I can, I will chip in. I will find a way to give, to help be a part of this. I will organize my life around becoming the answer to this problem, which I've seen a number of times now. Maybe I'm even seeing it now on you. (laughs) So to love is to act is a beautiful statement. I also believe it's a summary statement of Jesus. We were rooted in faith at the beginning of our organized life. and. I think to love is to act as a summary statement of everything that Jesus stood for, which is to say, it's not enough to say you care for your neighbor, you have to help them. He said the golden rule, in fact, Buddha said it too, the Jews have a similar statement, and so do the Hindus, that we should do for others what we would want done for us. That's the acid test of love and not sentiment. So that's where it comes from. Yeah, I mean, Suzanne quite often says, like, we can't wait for the day that we don't have to do this anymore, in that everything's okay. There's no need to report on horrible things that are happening because the situation is just not needing reporting on because everything's how it should be. Um, And I imagine the frustrations for yourself must be pretty much exactly the same, but a lot worse. You've been doing it for 22 years. That it's not that you get involved in these things because there's anything, you know, about yourself that's going to be able to change everything forever but it's something that's you know done out of selflessness because you want to help in the way that you can. In 1994 when my wife and I committed to that first little girl whose village was attacked in Karen State we looked at each other and we said you know it's not enough to pray for this little kid we, we have to do something and that's the idea that kicked off this whole adventure of getting involved in these conflict areas. And I believe it with my whole heart today. You know, we have many Muslims on staff in the Middle East now, Northeast Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and they have the same exact drive. And that is, it's not enough to talk. We need to find a way to do something about the violence that is being visited on these children. And they do it. So it's really, I think it's a great thought. And it's an important piece of our shared experience to think about. I have a lot of friends who grew up in refugee camps, particularly in Karani, Karan State. Uh, and some I, I knew before, some I, I've met since we started doing the podcast. And religion is a, is a huge part of it. You know, a lot of them, their education was true religion. And it was the only way they could get an education. And they were saying to me, like, you know, I had to say my prayers. <laughs> you know, I had to say, 
you know, I had to read the Bible, even though like I was like, they were, I guess they were Buddhist. Like, uh, and I was like, well, that kind of happens here too in the West. Like I had to say my prayers in school when I was growing up too. So, you know, it's similar, but how much is that tied in to what you do? Where does religion fit into your organization? In the beginning, it was how we got involved because my wife and I were both evangelical Christians and the, the churches and, and what you've described in the camps was part of what was an easy access for us. I got invited to speak at a church there. I was a pastor actually, but it didn't take long to see that there were problems with this whole missionary enterprise and that there's so many problems with the idea of conversion and working from the context of faith in order to help people is already a kind of manipulation for them to join your way of faith. So like in, I don't know, the end of the 90s, we moved intentionally away from working through churches and and religious bodies, which we did at the time, to working with CBOs, community-based organizations, and other groups who could do this work without all of the appendages or accoutrements of religion. We also, at that time, became a signatory to the Red Cross Code of Conduct. And that's a really great statement of humanitarian aid that says that as a signatory, you won't use people's poverty or lack of resources or access to power as a means to urge them to convert. So through a series of years, we grew more professional in our program development and delivery and less evangelical in the way that we thought about how we interact with people, especially people of other faiths. And I would say now that I'm still a spiritual person, I meditate every morning, but on our staff at every level, we have people represented from all of the faith expressions of the people that we work with. We have Muslims on staff and Buddhists on staff and and folk religion and also Christians, and um, none of them have a higher seat at the table. We're all in this together, and with whatever religious expression we are a part of, it's expected that we would be faithful stewards of love and express that love appropriately through the work that we do, and not through any kind of coercion or manipulation or encouragement to convert people. And to give you a clear answer on conversion, no, we don't convert people, and we don't do evangelism. And um but arguably, I mean, when people see real love, they're attracted to that. When they see that you care, they're attracted to that. And so I often have some of the most interesting conversations with people in the context of visiting our projects. And they're just curious. What makes you people tick? Why are you here? Why do you do this? And for me, it, it has flowed out of my understanding of what it means to be connected to humanity and have a shared experience and to somehow in some mystical way be under the umbrella of God's love. I don't understand that, but that is how I see it. I'm coming with another top question. No, no, that's <laughs> the one thing, and I'm, I'm going to say this on our own personal experience, is that somebody said that we were white saviors. I guess it shocked us because we're just trying to help our friends. So we were kind of surprised. But obviously, you're a, a white man, for anyone who doesn't know you, <laughs> and is just hearing your voice. We can confirm you are. Is that something you've ever come across, like this, you know, notion that, oh, you're here to save everyone? And 
Have you had that? Is that a thing? It's definitely a thing. And I've been offended by being called that in the past, but now I kind of take it in stride because I've been guilty of it. And that way of thinking that somehow I have the resources and the intelligence and the wisdom and, you know, the, the key that you need to unlock the door of your suffering and your poverty and whatever is a terrible sort of arrogance. It's also really disrespecting the resourcefulness and the talents and the, the heart of the people that we work with. And in the early days, you know, I look back and I think, yeah, that was in me. Part of it's just wanting to be helpful, wanting to be, you know, good and not having any other perspective that, okay, I've got money that you don't have. I can give you that. I know how to do at the time quicken. I know how to do accounting and I can help you figure that out. And then we figured out integrated farming from another outfit in Korea. And I thought, okay, we can, we can teach you how to do that. Turns out they've been doing integrated farming forever. <laughs> and, um, and there were some steps in it that our team was able to help with. But in the early days, when it was just my wife and I and a couple friends, I think that the label would have been appropriately sticky on me. Now my team is very sensitive to any communication and any intervention and any programming that has any taint of white savior thinking. And also because of the worldwide consciousness of this that has grown over the years, that it comes out of, you know, the discussions of Me Too and racism and white superiority. I think sometimes it goes overboard, but mostly I just think it's fair. It's a fair question. Are you one of those people? Because I've met them, I've talked to them, I've worked with them, and it's disgusting. So that you could be accused of that doesn't surprise me because you're also white. <laughs> and... um but, like, like the palest person on the planet. <laughs> I mean, like I'm the whitest person I know. It doesn't have yeah. <laughs> the Irish skin, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I guess the way I take it, when someone suggests that I could be a part of that overprivileged status state of white savior, or the way I take it now is, okay, you know, talk to me about that. Let me know what is it that I'm doing that you think is that way. How is it that I'm acting that makes you feel that that is my frame of mind? Because as far as I know, that's not what I'm about at all. And uh, I've listened to your podcast before today. And uh, I would definitely say your frame of mind is not that either. You're, you're two teachers exposed to Myanmar. You have some resources that you want to share with people you care about so that their lives can be better. And you want to empower the movement towards freedom and democracy in their country. And that's a beautiful thing. That's not white savior. So some people are angry and overly sensitive to it. And they might say something that's unfair, but taking it with humility and honestly reflecting on it and seeing what you can learn. That's what I do. That's how I handle it. Yeah, I'm just so impressed with that answer. It's such an amazing response. And it's definitely made me think about the way that I think of it as well and that term. My first thing when I first came back to the UK and the coup happened and just writing to my local politician and getting a response. And I was just like, why is this not the case for the people in Myanmar? Like it, it just, it, my own stupidity, I guess. Like I just felt so privileged to have a system in place. I might not achieve a great deal by it, but I got the feeling that I had a voice and I was being listened to. 
And I'd just come from a country where like, my friends were potentially getting arrested and beaten to death for going out and protesting. And that whole democracy thing, I mean, there's lots of different ways to run a country. There's not only one right way, but I just felt the privilege so acutely at just this simple thing of sending an email, which I take for granted. And I didn't realize how much I took it for granted until you had those direct comparisons. So you're cashing in your privilege. You're cashing it in because you want to give to others what they don't have or something that they need. And um, that's a beautiful thing. That's not that's the opposite of white privilege. <laughs> that is just simple privilege. <laughs> and but but there's also this like. Some of the ones that are really angry have a good reason for being angry because they've just been treated like shit. You know, they've been in the NGO scene and they're treated like second class citizens. They've been in the UN scene. They're treated as underlings. They've been in the government scene, you know, like, so their feeling of powerlessness and humiliation is part of what fuels that kind of anger. And that's understandable too. I, I can give space for that. I've met people like that. And if somehow we can like take that and say, you know, that's not me. <laughs> and can we have a talk about that? My experience has been these people become my biggest allies. They're just wonderful people, but they're angry because of the way they've been treated. So, I, I mean, there's a thousand nuances to that story, but yeah, and I and I think it's good to be reflective and humble about it instead of being reactive because it's a fair, it's at least a fair question. But we as white people wanting to be good in the world, wanting to love or to act on the impulse and sentiment of love, wanting to exchange our resources, privilege and freedom so that they can have more too, those are beautiful things that we shouldn't be ashamed of. This is like therapy. This is really good. I'm fine with this. Okay, yeah. It's like a great therapy session. We're a group session. <laughs> I think that's such a good point, though, about the anger. And yeah, and us trying to understand where that's coming from. Because for us, like, I mean, we have so many friends from so many backgrounds. We just don't see skin color in that way. You know, it's not our experience. So it's just shocking to us. And we're like, what? Watch me. And we have Burmese people on our team and we are acutely aware that it's our faces because we are not going to get killed or well, we're unlikely to be killed for doing this. Whereas they and their families, like the risks, there's so many people, even who are now have left the country, still face huge risks from the military. Uh, so, you know, we're well aware that we have the privilege to do this. But again, if I had my way, you wouldn't know us. Like we would just be voices, but people are like, well, people need to know you're real people, you know, because it isn't about us. It is about other people, you know, and lifting the voices. And yeah, it's just, it's a pity that things get blurred and muddy, but I, I think, yeah, maybe I should be a little more understanding. You've given me some food for thought there now. That's good. Well, we're good together. And, um, <laughs> and even for the mistakes that we make, we can own those and apologize and keep moving towards the greater good that's that's why we're here that's really good and steve tell me then in terms of what the biggest needs are right now on the ground in myanmar i mean is it food is it equipment to build temporary housing is it water is it sanitation what are the biggest problems i mean it's really cold right now it's colder than usual a lot of people have been telling me in the parts that they're in it's been a really cold uh, month for them yeah, I'm getting a lot of that, too, from my friends, especially in Karen State and Rakhine State. Yeah, it's those things you listed. We spend 
a big part of our budget right now on blankets, tarps, and rope to make temporary structures, flashlights, kitchen supplies for cooking, food, rice, all of those basic supplies are things that we're spending money on right now and delivering every day. So in the hierarchy of needs, that's our biggest need is money for those supplies. That's what we're spending most on right now. And in terms of getting those supplies, then do you partner with people on the ground, depending on the area? And is the military blocking that or do you need permission from some ethnic armed groups? Or are you able, you don't have to tell us if if it's not okay to tell us, but I'm, I'm just wondering how logistically it all happens at the moment. It depends on the ethnic state. But like I said, all of our programs are led by our ethnic national team members and they Again, depending on the ethnic states, they know both where to find vendors to purchase the supplies and then where the holes are in the porous border that they can exploit and get those supplies across. And then which militia or arm of the political or armed resistance they need to deal with in order to get those supplies to where those civilians are in in the greatest need. So, like I said, it's different in every ethnic state. The biggest program we have right now is in Karen State. That's where a lot of the people from the cities are going. And there's attacks. And today I read there's attacks in 1st Brigade, 2nd Brigade, 3rd Brigade, 4th Brigade, 5th Brigade, 6th Brigade. (laughs) So it's ongoing attacks. There's 20,000 people displaced just recently from air attacks in Duplea District. And as of today, we helped 32,403 people, you know, since those attacks started. and That's just one example of the aid that we're doing in the ethnic states. And all of it's being done by team members who, because they're from these places, find creative means to get those supplies across and to the places where they're needed most. What's different this time, I guess, in terms of what's been happening in Myanmar is the fighting back. Well, it's not new to... (laughs) to some of these ethnic states, but obviously we're seeing it more widespread around the country. Is that causing any difficulties or any extra issues or is there actually more supports there for the local people because of these groups that are setting up? Are they helping on the ground as well? Yeah, I would say that the later, you know, even in the 90s and 2000s, you had the DKBA and you had civilians and civilian groups that joined the armed resistance because of the tyranny of of the regime, the dictatorship. Now it's just bloomed into a much larger number of people. And um, I would say that's strengthening the resistance in those ethnic states, not weakening it. It may be why there's more reprisals and more attacks. I mean, in my report today from Karen State, I saw that you know, it's it's assumed that that's one of the reasons because of the people who are, you know, people's defense forces and NUG people crossing into those ethnic states and joining as armed combatants is why there's so many attacks right now. I think that's just a part of it. And it certainly increases the motivation of the regime to attack those places. But I, I wouldn't say that those civilians joining are creating They're not creating a bigger problem. They're joining the existing resistance to what the problem has always been. I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you is because, as I say, we're new to all of this and our eyes have been open to like that. Not everyone is just like a sound, decent person. Right. That was a big shock for us this year because we just thought people were just good people generally. Right. (laughs) But 
What I'm really shocked by is the competitive nature of activists. And I use the term activist so loosely right now because like, I'm not talking about, you know, real activists who, you know, care for all the oppressed people around the world. Even aid givers, like there's kind of a competition. Like when it comes to helping people, I don't think we should be competing against other people. <laughs> to me anyway, and I, I guess it sounds strange. Is that something you see or am I just seeing, is this a new thing that never happened before? Or, or can people be like, sorry, we're helping that group over there. You get out of town. Oh no, oh no, it's, it's, that's, uh, from the beginning, that's been a part of the deal. It's crazy. And, uh, some people just don't like each other. (laughs) And there is competition for limited or what is perceived to be limited resources. There's also the, what I referenced earlier, there are people in power who have been treated poorly by structures of power or white people. That creates tension. That creates, you know, the feeling that, uh, yeah, we, we got this covered. We don't want your help. Go away. Or even accusations that are unfounded in order to hurt that other organization. Again, if you understand the backstory, it's understandable. It's reasonable. These are people who have been hurt in the past. But then it's not all people that are like that. Some people are just territorial and small minded and mean and, and fight with each other and kind of have a glory problem or something. I find it bizarre because if you want to help people, you just want to help people. Like, I don't care who I have to, you know, deal with to get help to somebody. So I just find it so bizarre that when I've started to see this and how it happens, and I'm like, well, what do you mean they're, they're fighting over this? Just give the people the food. What's going on? <laughs> just again, something, it's not a world we've ever been in before. We're just a little surprised that like people would be arguing over these things. Like, it's like, it's not about you. It's about the people you're helping. No, it's disheartening. Definitely. But it's part of the deal. And is that like always the case? Like, or is it a case that do some groups cooperate quite well with each other? Like, I mean, I know some people who deliver aid and they, like, they will give it to any group in that area if they can get it through for them and they'll partner off. There's lots of groups like that. Maybe most groups are like that. I'd like to say that we are definitely like that. Partners really (laughs) element. But yeah, I would say it's also normal that there's this territorial thing and this need to be the one in the middle of the action or the one who makes things work or makes things happen. And for various reasons, they won't uh, work with others. And, you know, the, the chief among that story actually is the UN. So, (laughs) so, um, (laughs) but there are so many examples of that. You've referenced Massad and there's a lot of that in Massad and across the border from Massad. And I can think of that the same thing in Sean state. Kachin State, you know, competing for dirt, competing for affirmation, competing for dollars. Yeah, it happens every day. In terms of the content of this, I feel like, yeah, I feel like this has been a great episode for me and on a personal level, because I feel I've now reflected on things and I'm looking at things differently. Really good. You're good, Steve. You should be a counselor. You were a pastor. <laughs> you said that, didn't you? I can see it. I can see how you would be that. I was, yes. Yeah, yes. I can totally see it. But yeah, I feel kind of, my, my mind is opened a little bit. Well, anytime we react with anger, we should ask some curious questions. And uh, if it upsets our peace, then it means we're not really able to be peacemakers in the world. We have to, we got to get above that somehow. So thanks. Thanks for being a part of that. I mean, we see that in classrooms. The kids that get angry have there's something else going on. You know, they're not angry at us. They've got something else going on at home and it's just humanity, isn't it? Like you're saying about religion, 
people that are good take it to a good place and they want to do better than same yeah. in every walk of life. It's, it's just you act how you're feeling, I guess, and who you want to be. And it's very much about the individual. Yeah, that's right. That's good. So- was there anything else you wanted to add, Steve, that we didn't ask or that you wanted to bring up? And I know you've got some staff who listen to our podcast. We'll say hey to those guys. <laughs> they'll know if they're well, listening now. If they, don't, if they don't hear our hello, then we know they're not listening. They're just pretending. <laughs> my team loves you and the people you represent. And we started this organization working in Karen State and expanded to the ethnic states in Myanmar. And still to this day, all of us can be reduced to tears with one report of a village that we've been to or know about or have staff from. And just knowing the kind of violence that those people face and how unfair that is. And to spend your time after your work day to amplify the voices of people on the ground and people helping those people is a really beautiful thing. And I know that our Karen and Sean and Kareni and Kachin and Chin and And Rohingya staff members are going to celebrate the way that you contribute. So for your listeners, I invite them to stay right in the footsteps of what you're doing and listen closely and find a way, find ways to exercise Victor Hugo's dying words that to love is to act. So thank you. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.